Yeah, that, that was some excitement. I like that. That's good. Hey, I'm Mike, one of the pastors here, and just quick show of hands. How many of you actually got out of here and went somewhere for spring break? Okay, okay. How many of you were stuck here just like me? That's right. Yes. Yeah, it was me and Lee and a bunch of construction guys doing their thing on that side of the church all week. It was, it was I couldn't even work in my office. It was so lonely. I just set up shop in the coffee bar, and that was my office. It was a great, great deal. I wanted to open up today with a story that I heard a pastor named Tim Mackey share this week that really sets us up for where we're going in, in, uh, not Galatians, in Ephesians today. We are still in Ephesians. This story was about a gal named Crystal Jones who lives in Atlanta. And as a young adult, she got involved volunteering with a program called Teach for America. And what Teach for America does is it goes into areas that are often lower income areas, into under-resourced schools where they would maybe struggle to have enough teachers, and it helps provide teachers for these classrooms. And so Crystal went into an under-resourced school in Atlanta, and she was assigned to a first-grade class in a school that had no kindergarten. And so as she's meeting her class for the first time, she realizes there's maybe two or three of the kids that recognize any of the typical kindergarten sight words that you would recognize. Most of them don't know the alphabet hardly at all or their numbers, And on top of that, they don't know how to hold a book properly. They can't hold a pencil. And they've never been in a classroom setting. So their behavior, they just didn't know how to behave in that sort of setting. So it was just pretty much chaos. And here is Crystal, a young adult with no teaching degree, just some basic training to get her up to speed to be able to help these kiddos. And she's trying to figure out, what am I going to do with this? And so she's watching them one day at recess, all these first graders playing. And she's listening. She thought, maybe I can pick up on something about what motivates them. And that will help me motivate them to learn beyond what they know right now. And she realized really quick that there's one thing that these first graders wanted to be than anything else. They wanted to be third graders. When they looked at third graders, that was like, if I can get to age nine, third grade, I will have arrived. And she thought, I think I can work with that. So she gets up in front of the class, and she lays out her plan, and she says, Hey, I'm Miss Jones. I'm your teacher, and this year, I'm going to turn you all into third graders by the end of the year. And immediately, in the room, the kids kind of set up. They took notice, like, I like where this is going. This sounds great. And so she just focused them completely. Everything in the curriculum was focused on becoming a third grader. And she instituted this system for names where they didn't call each other by the first name, but they called themselves scholars. So, you know, I would have been Scholar Farnsley. She was Scholar Jones. And all the kids called each other by this. And every day they stood up and they said together, they recited the definition of what a scholar was. They would say, a scholar is someone who lives to learn and is really good at it. A scholar is someone who lives to learn and is really good at it. And they run with this system. School year starts playing out. They get a little later in the fall. Gets to about early November. And she says, I think this is working. She saw it turning. They get six months in. They get into the spring semester, February, March. And it came time for evaluations. And they give the kids these reading tests to see where their reading levels were. And every single kid in the first grade class, even the ones who in August didn't know any of the alphabet, numbers, couldn't hold books or pencils, didn't know how to behave, They passed that. Many of them were beyond a first grade reading level at a second, even a third grade reading level. 
It was this phenomenal thing. And what made all the difference was that Crystal, Crystal Jones, set up a classroom environment that was focused on who these kids would become. It didn't overly focus on where they were, what their background was, what their experiences. It didn't dismiss that. But it said, hey, this, this is important. But what's most important is we look at where we're going here. And people addressed each other by their new identities as a third grade scholar. It made all the difference. It swung it. For all of us, as followers of Jesus, we can relate to that. Because who we are is tied up in who we're becoming. Because we're becoming more like Jesus. The fullness of who he is, the Holy Spirit is gradually transforming us to be a little more like him each day. And what Crystal did for that class is what Paul and all these other authors who wrote the New Testament did for us. What Paul's done so far in his letter to the church in Ephesus, we're in chapter 4 today. As we've worked through it, we see that when we change the sense of who we are, that's when we're transformed. Our behavior is always going to follow our sense of identity. Because Paul says, you're not Gentiles. You're not Jews. Not anymore. You're a new humanity. That's what Jesus has done. You're something entirely different. And Paul spent the first three chapters of Ephesians talking about this is Jesus' story. This is this triumphant victory that he won over sin and death and brokenness. And he's put everything back together. And now in chapter 4 through 6, he says, all right, now let's talk about your story. Let's talk about how that impacts you, how that shows you who you are and changes how you speak and act and make decisions going forward. I'm going to pray over our time. Let's just dig into the meat, all right? Jesus, thanks for today. Thank you for spring break week, Lord, even though not all of us get to leave. I, I definitely have the sense that it gives all of us just a chance to breathe. Some of us just a chance to be or maybe to catch up on things that in the chaos of life, it's been hard to keep up with. And Lord, I pray that you will do a great thing I pray that as you launch us into this second half of Ephesians, that you will speak directly to us, that we will walk out of here with a clear picture of what it is that you're calling us to, of who we are, and really just what you want us to do over the next few days in light of what we learn. God, uh, no matter how we came in, I pray that you'll focus us here. And I pray you'll do a cool thing today. In your name we pray. Amen. If you'll flip to Ephesians 4.1, we'll be in the NIV today. You can go hard copy. Uh, you can pull it up. Uh, you can watch on screen. You can pull it up and go to insidescc.org, and all the verses will be lined up there nice and neat for you on a phone, a tablet, laptop. And to recap our series really quick, it's super helpful to remember, okay, this is a letter. It's called Ephesians. It was written to the believers in a town called Ephesus. It was probably circulated to other towns, but maybe you think, I don't know where Ephesus is. Well, we've got a map to help with that. So if you look here, this is the west coast of modern-day Turkey. You see the red dot, Ephesus. It was a very prominent town, well-known, prosperous city. And so it would make sense that when Paul wrote the letter there, it would be circulated to other churches because they needed to hear the same thing. And the letter to the Ephesians has been totally focused so far on basically our series is keyed around, this is what God did in the past, this is what he's doing now, and all of it is extraordinary. That's where our title came from, Extraordinary. And so a couple weeks ago, Brad talked about the theme of unity. And to help 
register that. There's this picture from the Bible Project I like a lot. And he talked about how we are one. Jesus has made us one. We are one body, one in spirit. We serve one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God. We are meant to do this together. That is super intentional on his part. And then when Lee brought the first half to the close, the end of verse uh, chapter 3, then he talked about this prayer that Paul offered. Now, Paul is a prisoner. He's writing this letter from behind bars. And he basically says, I want you to be strengthened by God's spirit. I want you to have a true grasp of just how much Jesus loves you. If you understand that, you have something to work with. So that's where he starts off. I'm going to pause and cough for just a second, guys. All right, allergies. It's a beautiful thing. Okay, so let's just dive into verse 1, shall we? Paul writes, as a prisoner for the Lord then, I urge you to live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. And make every effort to keep the unity of the Spirit through the bond of peace. This is fascinating, because how does Paul identify himself? He could have said, I'm a former Pharisee, had a great education. I'm an apostle of the church. Is that what he chooses? Nope. What's he say? says, I am a prisoner. I am Paul the prisoner. And that feels kind of counterintuitive to us. Like, why would you introduce yourself as that? But what it does, it shows just how sold out Paul is on this mission that Jesus has him on. He's truly passionate. The word passionate means you're willing to suffer. Well, he's willing to suffer. He's suffering. And he says, the walls of this cell, these bars, these chains, none of that can stifle the purpose I have. What I still get to do, even though it's mostly just letter writing at this stage. But it definitely doesn't stifle what God is up to. And he says, what should you do? He says, I urge you, live a life worthy of the calling you've received. Well, that word, live a life, if you look in the original language, the Greek, it simply meant walk. And in a world where a lot of people had a Jewish background, the picture of walking was often used to describe your spiritual life, your faith journey, because... It was how you lived it out. It was a picture of action. It meant there's effort involved. It meant there is purpose. So Paul says, walk, go walk, go live this life worthy. And what does it take to be worthy? Well, well, Paul doesn't dish out a bunch of do's and don'ts. He gives us this list right here. Let's just break it down. Look at this picture. So we've got uh, humble, gentle, patient, bearing in love, being a keeper of unity, relying on the bond of peace. You notice most of these aren't actions. They're not. They are, what are they? Well, those are attitudes that drive our actions, that underlie our actions. These are the correct postures that support correct behavior. These are the Jesus-like postures that support Jesus-like behavior. Attitudes matter. When you walk into a room, if you walk in and immediately you can tell people are completely focused on themselves, then in the conversation there's a bunch of pride and there's no consideration for you, it's probably not a room you're going to spend a lot of time in. You're going to get out of there, rightfully so. But if you walk into a room, into a circle of people, a conversation, and they're being humble, and they embrace the things on this list, they want to listen to you, they clearly care about more than just themselves, you say, man, I'll stick around there. Well, that's what Paul wants. Paul wants to be that, man, as the church, you're that room, you're that circle. When people come in, they should be intrigued by where you're at. And we got to kind of self-assess on ourselves a little bit. Okay, well, let's break these down. Let's start with being humble, showing humility. This was not 
an applauded thing in Paul's day at all. In that culture, in the first century, in the Roman world, they would have said, no, 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 no. Don't show too much humility. Don't be too humble because that'll dishonor you in the lives of your peers. But Paul is saying, well, no, no, no. I don't take the cues from my culture. I take the cues from the guy upstairs. And the reason humility is so important is because it keeps us from comparing ourselves to other people and it focuses on the fact that we're a servant of God. And every day we become a little bit more like our master. Where we can say, yeah, hey, I'm, I'm a work in progress, I'm a servant, and it's a really great gig. And the reason it's a great gig is because I serve someone who loves me. So being humble is huge. But then you got gentleness and you got patience. These were seen a little more positively back then. I would say they're still seen really positively today. And it makes sense because being gentle and patient doesn't mean you're weak. No, no, that means you've got courage. If someone came to you and said, I need you to tame this wild horse, what are you going to need? You're going to need courage. You're going to need gentleness. You're going to need patience. You know, okay, let's bring it real life. You want to raise a three-year-old and keep him alive? Want him to survive? You need gentleness and patience. You want to sur survive middle school and high school. You're going to need gentleness and patience. You want to figure out how to live young adulthood when there's no map and everyone has their own thing that they're doing in life? Gentleness, patience. You want to retire after doing something for 40 years and figure out how to keep walking with purpose? You need gentleness. You need patience. No matter where you are in your life, that's part of your walk. That's essential. Humble, gentle, patient. Well, what about this unity and peace stuff? Well, Paul is basically making the case that, hey, if, if God brought us together and said we aren't doing this solo, who are we to break this thing apart? That shouldn't happen. That shouldn't be what goes down. And whenever you struggle and you feel like you're lacking peace, where should you look for it? Well, in Jesus. If anything, he should be the one thing that you have in common at all times. Because peace isn't the absence of struggle. It's having hope that Jesus went and fought the greatest struggle, won the biggest battle, and the war is won. The fighting's just playing out for a little while till he comes back. And so we have to ask ourselves, does that list on that screen describe you? Would you, if you ask someone who knows you well, say, would they say, yeah, that person, they're humble, gentle, patient, bearing with others in love. Yeah, they seek to maintain unity. They're a person of peace. Where are you at with that? Because now Paul pivots a little bit. In verse 7, here's what he says. He says, but to each one of us, grace has been given as Christ apportioned it. It's good news. Grace is something we don't deserve. Jesus has given us something we don't deserve. In verse 8, he says, this is why it says this. When he ascended on high, he took many captives and he gave gifts to his people. Now, what does he ascended mean? Except that he also descended to the lower earthly regions. He who descended is the very one who ascended higher than all the heavens in order to fill the whole universe. So Paul says, if you follow Jesus, you're given grace. And Paul pulls this quotation out of the Old Testament. It's from Psalm 68. And it's, an, it's battle imagery is what it is. Typically, if a king and his army won a victory, you went and you took over the city. There might have been some, some prisoners, some POWs. But a lot of times there were treasures. There were spoils of, of war. And the soldiers got some of those. And often the people back in the land would get those. And even if it was a victory that you won and there wasn't a bunch of plunder and spoils, sometimes the greatest spo spoil was that, well, there was simply an absence of conflict. 
Maybe you had an enemy that was just at your gates constantly for 20 years, and this king won this victory and said, hey, I got news for you. You get peace. You don't have to worry about them at the doorstep anymore. They are defeated. That's what Jesus does with his grace, because he dealt with sin. He dealt with death. He dealt with the brokenness. But Paul kind of steps as an aside, and they put it in parentheses for that reason. He says, but do you realize who this victor is? He says, well, he ascended to heaven, so clearly he was on earth at some point, so he was a human being like us. But it also says if he descended to get here in the first place, and that means he came from heaven, and if he started out in heaven, then he's a spiritual being. He's the God of the universe. And so the God of the universe became a man. He's 100% God, 100% man. He is the great God-man. He is the only one who could do what he did. Jesus is the only one who could do that. Do we recognize that? Do we see what he's up to even now? I don't know if any of you watch that show Undercover Boss. I've gotten to see a couple episodes. It's fascinating because what they do in Undercover Boss, they usually take maybe the founder of a company, the CEO, and they drop him into uh, maybe if it's a chain of restaurants, they drop him in as a newbie who's working in the dish room or as a new trainee. And it basically gives them a chance to see their company in real life. So people aren't posturing. They don't know it's the boss, so they act just like they would any other time. Sometimes that works out really well. Sometimes it doesn't work out very well. And inevitably, there's a point in the show where the boss reveals themselves, where she or he says, hey, actually, I own this company. And a lot of times the employees are like, oh, shoot, this is really bad. They didn't recognize them. And sometimes, you know, that means the boss says, hey, you're doing a great job. Keep doing that. Sometimes it means the boss says, I got some hard truth for you. Things have got to change right now. But everything shifts the moment they see who the undercover boss is. So if we know Jesus has been at work and is still at work, I would ask, do you recognize it? On an average day in your life, do you see him at work? Do you sense the Holy Spirit? Or are you kind of missing out on that in the chaos around you? Well, if you are, hang tight because Paul's going to speak to this a little. Verse 11, he says, So Christ himself gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the pastors and the teachers to equip his people for works of service so that the body of Christ may be built up until we all reach unity in the faith and in the knowledge of the Son of God and become mature, attaining to the whole measure of the fullness of Christ. So Paul gives us this list. And we'll show this in picture form. If you're like me, having the visual helps. So unity doesn't mean uniformity. We're unique. We've got this one spirit, but there's many gifts. We've got apostles, teachers, prophets, pastors, evangelists, and what's the whole purpose? To build up the church. Now, a lot of times when Paul writes this, he's talking about gifts that everybody has. But in this list, he's talking a little bit more about the people that specifically help lead the church. So for us, it would be like our staff team, our pastor team. And sometimes we see these words and we think of these words as maybe ancient words and we don't know how these function modern day. But, well, I can tell you, for instance, an apostle, right? An apostle is somebody who helps start new things, and it's someone who helps steady the ship when you have the growing pains and the struggles that come. Seely is an apostle. She can help get new stuff going. She can help you troubleshoot and figure stuff out on the fly. That's a gift. She functions as an apostle. Now, prophets, what do prophets do? Prophets speak God's truth, speak his word boldly and clearly and plainly, whether you want to hear it or not, because you need to hear it. 
You know, someone that's growing in this gift is Pastor Lee. He's very prophetic. I know when he speaks something that if God tells him to say something, I may not want to hear it, but man, I need to hear it. So apostles, prophets. Now what about evangelists? They're the ones who boldly proclaim the good news of the gospel. And it just seems like God's just wired them. They can do that and people just come to Jesus. It's like Pastor Brad. Dude could read two pages out of a phone book and 17 people would accept Jesus. Because he's just, he's just gifted that way. He's an evangelist. What about pastors and shepherds? Well, they watch over and they nurture the church, you know? Brandon falls into that. If you go to Brandon and say, I'm struggling with this. I'm trying to grow as a, a leader. I'm trying to grow in, in this discipline. He's got a tool. He's got a process. He's going to say, hey, I can help you with that. That's what a shepherd does. Helps the sheep get where it needs to go. And, and what about the teachers? That, well, they are the ones who they instruct people in God's word. You know, when Craig goes to teach, you know, Craig, sometimes when he's up, inevitably, he gets the week where it's really heavy and really comp- complicated. And when Craig talks, you just go, man, you just made that doable for me. And he's a teacher. And in a sense, all these gifts, the apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, slash shepherds, and teachers, we're kind of like a group of player coaches because we're in the game. You know, we're serving, but our main thing is to equip other people. Some of you know a guy, he, he was here first service, his name's Ben Purvis. Uh, Ben's been in this town a long time. I think his ancestors helped found the city of Shelbyville. So you can thank Ben the next time you see him for having a place to live and, and eat out and shop. But with Ben, he coaches the soccer team at Shelbyville High School. Done it a lot of years. They've been one of the most successful sports programs at Shelbyville the last decade or so. And whenever Ben comes up in conversation... He's just somebody that the whole six degrees of separation, there's only two or three. Everybody knows him. Everyone knows his family. And when Ben comes up, they say, well, hey, he coaches, but did you ever see him play? Did you ever see him play soccer? And usually I say, well, no, I didn't because I played other sports and Shelbyville was way better than Morristown most years. And if I dropped my $4 to go see the game, we were going to get our heads beat in. And I didn't want to see that. But they say, man, Ben's a good coach, but man, that guy could play. He knew what he was doing. And even though now, he like me, or, you know, we're on into our 30s and relying on the ibuprofen and the knee braces and stuff, I know that when he gets out to practice and runs those guys through drills, so Nathan, I'm talking to you back there in the tech bunker, you know, you've been through these drills. When he does that, if he needs to, he can jump in and show them how it's done. When they have their alumni game, yeah, it might take him a little bit to get warmed up, but he can still go and he can sneak the goal past the goalie like few of his own players can. He, can. he can make it happen when he needs to. He's almost like a player coach on the sideline. And that is kind of how me and the rest of our staff functions. When it comes to the ministry of our church, staff are not primary ministers. We're the equippers. And that means you all in the seats right here and watching online, you're the ministers. That's what you are. And so I'd ask, is that how you see yourself? Would you say, yeah. I'm a minister. That's what I go and I minister for Jesus' sake. Do you see yourself as a player in the game, not someone sitting on the sidelines or in the stands? Because as one of your coaches, I have to ask that question. Because if we're going to do what we're supposed to be doing, we've got to embrace that. You're in the game. You're ministering. And it's honestly, it's my job to help equip you for that. So let's wrap this up. Verse 14. Then we'll no longer be infants, 
tossed back and forth by the waves and blown here and there by every wind of teaching and by the cunning and the craftiness of people and their deceitful scheming. Instead, speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who's the head, that is Christ. From him, the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. So Paul says, if you're immature in your faith, what are you like? You're like a helpless infant. Now, babies are really adorable. I will give you that. But that's pretty much the main thing that a baby has going for it. Because most of the time, babies are loud. They poop a lot. They spit up a lot. They are very high maintenance. They can't care for themselves. They can't protect themselves. I guarantee you, if a random person got out of your row right now and laid a baby at the half-court circle and just walked out of this room... Some of y'all, it wouldn't even be 30 seconds, and you would be on that baby like a puma, like, I need to help take care of you. It's not safe. Babies don't lay at half court. But Paul says, hey, if you're immature in your faith, you're kind of like that baby. And most of us in English class, we were taught, don't you mix your metaphors, you'll confuse people. Well, Paul operated a little bit different way. Paul never met a metaphor he didn't like, and Paul was like, I'll use four metaphors in a row that aren't related to each other if it helps you understand what I'm trying to say to you. So Paul says, not only are you an immature baby, he says, let's bring in this other thing of the picture of the waves raising the stakes like a sailor who can't sail his ship. So we have a baby portrayed as a sailor. So an innocent, adorable, helpless, vulnerable sailor baby. That's what I am if I'm immature. Paul says, yes, you've got it. All right, Paul. Because Paul knows the, what are the biggest threats to someone who's immature in their faith? Well, it's the false teachers who speak things that aren't true. And you, immature in your faith, don't know that it's not true. It's the people who are devious and have an agenda that's not God's agenda. It's the people whose focus is their own gain. And sometimes it's just the people who mean well, but they're misguided and they're determined to bring others with them, maybe because they're immature. That's the threat to a baby. And this is why we need each other. Because there's two pictures that Paul's been weaving together so far in Ephesians. We're going to show these on the board, on the screen. So he said, when the church is built up, we're a new temple. That's an image Brad has unpacked a bunch. But we're also a new humanity. We're a body that has Jesus as the head. That's a good image for us, especially modern day. We know in the head what sits inside your head, the brain. What does your brain do? Well, it connects all the nerves and passageways. It keeps your body functioning and operating like it needs to. And so Paul says, well, when you speak the truth to each other, we help the different parts of the body. Because what's verse 16 says? It says we're joined together. We're held together. We support one another. And Paul says, if you want to walk worthy of this calling and you want to get very far in that walk, what do you need? Well, you better have that support. You better have the ligaments and the muscles helping you out, the other people. When we do that work, we build each other up. But on the flip side, if we don't, this is what we end up as. Check out this picture of this fast food icon. Have you ever seen this? Yeah, that's the colonel. That's Colonel Sanders himself. I have known lots of people who spent most of their life thinking that instead of being a little tie under his chin, that that was the colonel's body. And they were deeply concerned for the colonel. It literally took them getting into adulthood and having someone say, you moron, that's a little tie under his chin. That's not his body. But, okay, let's run with it that that is a body. 
that should deeply concern us just like it did the others because we have Jesus in all of his fullness, all of his joy, all of his knowledge of the perfect recipe for chicken, but in a spiritual sense, okay? We got Jesus. And if we don't make the choice to build each other up, we end up really top-heavy. We cannot function like we need to function. So again, we need to ask ourselves, well, are we doing that? Are we speaking truth in love? Are we building each other up? Is that like on our radar as an ever-present thing? Or are we so top-heavy that we've gotten into a situation here? We've reached the point, that's kind of the end of the section. So we say, well, what do we do? Because we know that going on this walk and getting where we need to be and having purpose, it is way more than just knowing the right stuff. Paul would have said, I cannot imagine you just knowing the right stuff, but not living the right way. Paul would say that's two sides of the same coin. If you really get it, you will really live it. That is how this works. What's crazy is in this letter, Paul, he doesn't have a fire and brimstone approach. He's not dropping truth bombs every chapter like if you were with us a year or two ago and we went through Galatians. Every week, Brad's like, now this is hitting pretty hard. Like conviction, rebuke, boom. Well, why doesn't Paul do that? Well, because Paul assumes if you came here to church and you're sitting under the word and you're grappling with this, then you came here knowing this is going to impact your life. He knows that it's not going to shock you if you read this and you go, that really messes with my life. That really cost me something to do that. Paul would say, good, because that's the reality. I know. I'm behind bars. I've got these walls. I've got chains. I get it. And so to help us walk out of here with this, I've got this quote from a gal I have huge respect for. Her name is Dr. Lynn Coick. She's at Northern Seminary, kind of in the suburbs of Chicago. She's the provost and the dean there. Amazing scholar. And in this commentary she wrote about Ephesians, this is how she describes how we need to grow together as the body of Christ. So we're going to throw this on the screen. She says, truth is to be lived out in such a way that the body of Christ, that's us, grows bigger as new members are added and each one gains maturity. Okay, great. So bigger. That it grows stronger as each by themselves and together understand more fully the riches of Christ. Okay, bigger, stronger. And grow steadier as the church stands firm in the face of struggles. So when we think about growth, these are three words that are pretty familiar with us. Bigger, stronger, steadier. Bigger, stronger, steadier. And my guess would be, if you self-assess and you've been wrestling with these questions as we went along and let Paul's truth seep in a little bit, you go, okay, there's probably going to be one of those three you really need to pay extra attention to. And so, let's think for a second. Some of you, when you walk out here, you need to think about getting bigger. And, you know, she said, we grow bigger as new members are added and each one gains maturity. Well, our whole focus the last two years have been bringing hope and healing to our community. We said 87% of people in this town don't know Jesus or are not following him. So maybe you need to pray really intentionally. God, who do you want me to rub shoulders with in this town that doesn't know you yet? Maybe you need to join us in a few weeks. We're going to be promoting a prayer walk where we just go and we immerse the whole city. Our goal is to walk every street in Shelbyville by the end of 2022. Maybe you just need to be a part of that and go walk and pray for the town and see what God impresses on you or Maybe some of you say, well, I actually know somebody who is following Jesus, but man, they're new in their faith. They are a helpless sailor baby, and they need some help. And you need to go help them. 
Maybe bigger needs to be your focus. Or maybe some of you, let's move on to the next one, stronger. When you get stronger in the weightlifting world, they say, well, you got to put more weight on that bar. you got to pump more iron. Some of you, maybe you served, but you're feeling God say, hey, I've got something bigger for you. You need to bite off a bigger chunk. Maybe God's saying, hey, you've tried to go it alone. I've been with you, but you need other people. You need those other body parts. So some of you need to go and seek out somebody to shoulder that burden with you. When you grow stronger, you don't just want to eat more stuff. What do you have to do? You have to eat the right stuff. Maybe you need to look at your spiritual diet and say, am I feasting on God's word like I need to be? Am I seeking solitude every couple days? Am I praying every day? Because you know what? You're not going to grow spiritually if you don't. So maybe to get stronger, you need to find the people to walk with you and you need to look at your diet. Maybe you say, well, bigger didn't resonate, stronger doesn't, but steadier does. When you think about steadying, that means you support the weak parts of your body. If you go to a physical therapist, what are they going to do usually? They're going to identify what part of your body is weak. And it may not even be the one that has an issue. If you have a knee issue, they may say, you have serious problems in your quads. Let's work those quads. That'll help make you steady. That'll help your knee issue. Well, some of you, you say, I feel really unsteady. I don't know where I need to go. And today you need to ask for help from the Holy Spirit and maybe from the church. You need to come to us player coaches and say, I need help. Help me here. And we'd love to do that. Or maybe some of you, again, maybe you know somebody, you say, I know somebody who's really unsteady. Maybe it's someone who's immature in their faith, or maybe it's someone that's just in a really crappy season of their life. And you need to go and help steady them. You need to be that body part that helps them out. So I'm going to pray in a second and kind of close this out. But I would say, as we're praying, ask God, God, do you want me to focus on growing bigger? Do you want to grow me bigger? Do you want to grow me stronger? Do you want to grow me steadier? Because if we do that, we can do what we're supposed to do. We can function that way and not be top-heavy. And we cannot settle for being helpless little sailor babies. So Jesus, I thank you for this. God, there's so much that Paul packed into these verses. Lord, I did the best I could to unpack it like you unpacked it for me. And I pray, God, that as we walk out of here, that one of those words, you will just burn into our brains, that you'll imprint it on our hearts. God, if you want to grow us bigger, put the person in mind that we need to go and help get to know you. God, if you want us to grow stronger, put in mind the person that we need to walk shoulder to shoulder with to do what you're telling us to do, God, or maybe just reassess our spiritual diet completely. God, if you want us to grow steadier, Will you give us the courage to ask for help that we need? Will you give us the insight to go to the person that's not very steady and to play the role you want us to play to help stabilize them? Father, we need your help with this. We're excited that we're at that point, God, where I'm praying it's not going to be 39 degrees. I'm praying we're going to be out and about more. I'm praying that God, this spring is going to be sweet leading up to Easter. In the meantime, will you grow us bigger? Will you grow us stronger? And will you grow us steadier? Go with us today, Lord. Give us the insight we need. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you, everybody, for coming. I hope you have a good last few hours of spring break. If you can help stack a chair before you leave, awesome. Otherwise...
We'll see you next Sunday. Have a good one.